This is Quotations, a podcast about words, written and spoken throughout history. If you can fill the unforgiving minute with 60 seconds worth of distance run, we shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. No matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. The Pale Blue Dot, the only home we've ever known. Hello and welcome to Quotations. I'm Matthew Monroe. Here's today's quote. We should do away with the absolutely specious notion that everybody has to earn a living. It is a fact today that one in 10,000 of us can make a technological breakthrough capable of supporting all the rest. The youth of today are absolutely right in recognizing the nonsense of earning a living. We keep inventing jobs because of the false idea that everybody has to be employed in some kind of drudgery because, according to Malthusian Darwinian theory, he must justify his right to exist. So we have inspectors of inspectors and people making instruments for inspectors to inspect inspectors. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it is they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them they had to earn a living. And some of you may recognize that quote. It is by, of course, Buckminster Fuller, a name that is not only fun to say, but it belongs to a very interesting man. Now, Richard Buckminster Fuller was born July 12, 1895, and he died July 1st, 1983, just shy of his 88th birthday. He was an architect, an inventor, a philosopher, and an author of the extremely interesting book, Utopia or Oblivion, The Prospects for Humanity. Primarily as an architect, Fuller popularized the idea of the geodesic dome. And you've probably seen these before. If you've ever seen pictures of or visited Disney's Epcot, down in Orlando, Florida, you've seen a version of a geodesic dome. That is the giant silver golf ball-looking ride called Spaceship Earth. And that is a geodesic dome. It is a fascinating mix of geometric shapes that create a very strong and very durable dome. And Fuller loved these. He integrated them into his designs quite frequently and was a major champion of them during his, during his days. He also championed something he called the Dymaxion car. Dymaxion is a sort of acronym. It's a combination of the words dynamic, maximum, and tension. So Dymaxion, based around the maximum gain of advantage from minimal energy input, which of course is efficiency, right? Maximum efficiency. We want the most out for the least in. And In Fuller's opinion, this technically, and you should look this up, the Dymaxion car is a very interesting looking thing. It's sort of a teardrop-shaped vehicle. And Fuller would have rejected the idea that this was a car. This was actually, in his opinion, it was a vehicle with a ground taxiing mode. And it was meant to eventually, when the technology caught up, be able to fly and be a multimodal form of transportation, meaning you could fly, you could drive, you could skim across the water, etc. All of this for minimal energy input and maximum energy output. He also applied the same Dymaxion principle of maximum efficiency to homes, and he designed a Dymaxion house, which was built around maximum packability and transportability to any environment. Now, you have to remember that in the early 20th century, it was not uncommon for people to order to buy a piece of land and then order a home kit and then build that home or bring people in to help them build that home. Famously, Richard Nixon, 
the controversial president of the mid-1970s, did exactly that. Did His father did exactly that when he was a child. Ordered, had a piece of property in California, ordered a kit that arrived on a rail car, and then he built that home, which still stands today, by the way. If you ever visit, get a chance to visit the Richard Nixon Museum, you'll see that home. And that is a kit home. And that is sort of the idea that Buckminster Fuller was going with here, is that the most efficient home, the home that gets you the most for the least amount of input, is one that is designed from the very beginning to be maximally transportable and maximally useful in every climb and place in which it could be built. So that was his goal as an architect with the Dymaxion home, was to design something that could very easily be packaged up and made from pieces and parts that could be assembled relatively easily. Now, there's a utilitarian aspect to that. Of course, homes are a, an extremely individual thing, and Dymaxion, utilitarian, utopian type of homes were not as popular as I'm sure Fuller would have liked. But the idea is an interesting one to consider. If a home was considerably less expensive because it was much easier to put on a truck, put on a train, or fly to wherever it needed to go because it was packaged nicely, it would make a lot more sense than the long, drawn-out, highly customized, individualistic way that we do homes today. And Fuller, also as a final note, was the second president of Mensa, Mensa being the organization built around people with extremely high IQs. So he was certainly an interesting guy, to be sure. And today's quote is indicative of that. So where does today's quote originate? Well, it comes from the New York Magazine, which was founded in 1968, so relatively late in Fuller's life, as a competitor to The New Yorker. You've probably seen The New Yorker. You've probably visited The New Yorker. We've actually done a couple of quotes on here with people who have contributed to The New Yorker. The New York Magazine was the lesser known and more nascent paper. It's still around today, and it's... It's quite interesting. Now, early on, New York Magazine was a bastion for what was then called new journalism. And this is a term that I was not familiar with, but is well-known in the journalist circles. And new journalism at the time, again, this is the late 60s, early 70s, was an immersive and subjective form of journalism that was a little more irreverent than traditional journalism, in which the journalist would dive in deep to the subject matter which they were covering and take an almost deliberately almost subjective view of the journalism as opposed to the objective view. And if you're a journalism major out there and I am butchering this definition, I apologize. But that was my understanding in, in doing the research for this is that that's kind of what New York Magazine did. And reading through some of the articles that I've, I did in research to this, that makes sense. There is a little bit more of an edge to it. It's a little bit more probably recognizable to us today than it might have been to people who had been around in the 40s and 50s as something familiar. And so the quote is pulled from a 1970 edition, March 30th, 1970 to be exact. And it's pulled from a panel-style article called The New York Magazine Environmental Teach-In by journalist Elizabeth Barlow. And this is an interesting article. The article, as Sagan told us last episode, allows the journalist and the panel to speak to us today, 51 years later, across time and space. So it's a little bit of, as Carl Sagan would say, a little bit of magic. And what I'm going to do is read you the introductory paragraph to this, because again, the New York Magazine is something that we, many of us have not necessarily picked up and read offhand. You may have if you live in or around New York itself, the city. But the intro paragraph to this 
panel of sorts should give you an idea of the type of article. It's rather relatively indicative of the type of article that you might find in the New York Magazine. So here's the introductory paragraph again. This is Elizabeth Barlow opening this written panel of, of experts. She says, quote, Like so many Isaiahs, the prophets of the environmental crisis cry their warnings of doom. New York is choking on its own air, gagging on its refuse, and being strangled by its automobile traffic. The city has become a kind of pathological Brobdingnag, a monster in whose death throes we are all participating. While we are living in an age of organ transplants and other medical wonders, perhaps a battery of specialists can doctor this sickle city, repair her guts, reconstitute her blood, tone up her muscles, lift her face, save her life. In the belief that if solutions are necessary, they might also be possible, I interviewed planners, architects, biologists, philosophers, anthropologists, city officials, a union leader, and a poet. And as I listened to the words of one echoing or contradicting those of another, I began to fancy myself the moderator of a teach-in conference. End quote. So there you can see what, what Barlow has done here is gone and found all these experts, and there's a list of who they are, and I won't read them all to you, but there are some interesting names. You can find this article, by the way, the entirety of the New York Magazine backlog is on Google Books. So you can actually pull this up and read it in its original form with its original artwork. It's quite fascinating. But it's a very eclectic panel that she assembles here. And remember, this is the 1970s. There is no Microsoft Teams. This is not a Google Hangout. There is no group with this. This took time, right? Barlow had to interview and speak with each of these authors, ask them, or excuse me, each of these panel members, and ask them a variety of questions. And then she had to sift through the significant amount of responses that she received and put the ones that were of greatest interest into her article. And like I said, it's kind of an eclectic panel. And remember, I'm going to read the quote again, but remember, this is the New York Magazine. This is new journalism. This is a, a new way to present information. And we also have to remember a little bit that extremes get headlines. So I'm going to read this one more time and keep in mind that, again, extremes as they do today then also got headlines. So here's the quote. Quote, We should do away with the absolutely specious notion that everybody has to earn a living. It is a fact today that one in 10,000 of us can make a technological breakthrough capable of supporting all the rest. The youth of today are absolutely right in recognizing this nonsense of earning a living. We keep inventing jobs because of the false idea that everybody has to be employed at some kind of drudgery because, according to Malthusian Darwinian theory, he must justify his right to exist. So we have inspectors of inspectors and people making instruments for inspectors to inspect inspectors. The true business of people should be to go back to school and think about whatever it was they were thinking about before somebody came along and told them they had to earn a living. End quote. Neat concept. And others, based on a full reading of the panel, are much more extreme in their viewpoints. One argues that everybody should get a jetpack because there is too much vehicle traffic and jetpacks would, would open up the skies and allow people to move about in three-dimensional space instead of just two-dimensional space. And some are, are less extreme. The idea of bike lanes physically separated from cars that would allow bikers in the city safer movement from point A to point B. That sounds familiar. That's because you now see that absolutely everywhere. But in 1970, when this panel came together, that was a, a novel idea. It was a little bit extreme, but not ridiculous. Not jetpack ridiculous, anyway. And this quote is, interestingly enough, in a section about the number of dogs in the city of New York as a solve for people's anxieties and frustrations. And the section following this quote actually makes reference to being on a six-day treadmill, quote-unquote, to 
cycle junk through our houses, which is an interesting way of thinking about consumerism, right? We all have jobs. We all work to earn a living. We have some form of income. And what do we do with it? Well, we buy things. We consume. That's food. That's clothing. That's material items, things of interest. And the idea that we are on some kind of treadmill, right, where we do a similar thing day in and day out for years on end in order to ensure that an automatic deposit goes into a bank account so that we can buy stuff. That's one way to look at it. This is an interesting perspective. A six-day a six-day treadmill to cycle junk through our houses. You probably, when things get old and worn out, you throw them away, or hopefully you donate them to a charity or something like that so that somebody else um, can take advantage of them. But that's an interesting concept. So this is the type of article that's being written here. This is a bunch of people with a variety of backgrounds in everything from nuclear physics to architecture to city planning being asked questions about the state of New York City. And I wasn't alive in 1970, and you may not have been either, but it sounds like New York City had many of the same problems or similar problems that it has today. It was crowded. A lot of the, a lot of the panelists in this article make the point that there were a lot of people. The biggest challenge in New York City is the number of people. There's so many that it's crowded. Nobody can get around. The air is filled with noxious gases from vehicles. Refuse is a problem. Figuring out how to deal with trash. It's a problem New York still deals with today. You can see that from a few years back when New York had to deal with the aftermath of a hurricane and trash collection became a major problem. The number of people that live in New York City, some, what, 12 million at this point, generate a lot of garbage. And if nobody picks that garbage up, it accumulates very quickly and becomes a very significant problem. So New York City is an interesting place in this regard, and you may never have been to New York City or care about New York City, and that's fine. But New York City is the model for this particular panel because it's where the magazine is based, so it's locally interesting. But it also is, because of its size, it amplifies the effects that we experience everywhere. Of course, you might say, yes, everybody would have a problem if their trash didn't get picked up. Yes, you're absolutely right. But it's significantly more amplified in a 12 million person city, which is why I think this panel is actually interesting. And Fuller creates an interesting, makes an interesting statement here. Remember, extremes make headlines. Each of these panelists was trying to probably deliberately say some things that were on the extremes. And Fuller certainly did. The idea that people shouldn't have to work? Well, is that what, is that what Fuller said? Yeah, he says this is a specious notion that everybody must work and that it's a justification for our existence. Think about that, right? How many people do you know that, or how many times have you potentially seen someone who is unemployed or who you perceive to be unemployed? Think of a panhandler on the street. And they, we have some pejorative terms that we've used in the past for them, things like hobo and bum, things that reference someone who, what? What is the primary thing about that person that defines them to us? They are jobless. They are not working. How can you be working if I pass you on my way to work while you sit on the sidewalk in tattered clothes holding a cardboard sign asking for my change? You don't have a job. That defines you as a person in my eyes. And is that right? Is that, should that be the defining characteristic of a human being? Should that define that individual's right to exist? The idea that they have to be on this same six-day treadmill, five-day treadmill, whatever it happens to be for you, in order to justify their existence. And that's in reference to the Malthusian-Darwinian theory that he's talking about, survival of the fittest. The person who has the best attributes gets to 
procreate. We want more people like that. It's, it's a Darwinian theory. And the idea that if somebody doesn't have a job, that there must be something wrong with them. They must be lazy. There must be looking for a handout, looking for an easy ride, while somebody else, you, me, or someone that you may know, is working hard, doing the work, putting in and tackling the challenges of the day, contributing, quote unquote, to society. And that's what Fuller is challenging here. Now, of course, this is an extreme because Fuller doesn't really give us a solution. He makes a complaint. He says that it's a specious notion that everybody must work to justify their existence. But what he doesn't really do is give us a solution. Sure, at the very end, he talks about going back to school and thinking about what you enjoyed before somebody told you you had to earn a living, quote unquote. But that's not really a solution. And that last piece is actually kind of interesting. Think about the term that we use for that. How do you earn a living? Right? We define that as a job. When you talk to somebody, you ask them, well, what do you do for a living? What do I do for a living? Well, I live. I enjoy my life. I experience things. I challenge myself. I read. I walk. I travel. Whatever it is, that's what you do for a living. But when we say, what do you do for a living, at least in America, what we're talking about is, what is your job? And that's one of the defining characteristics of any interaction that you have with people. Think about, think about approaching a stranger at a Christmas party or at a bar or at a restaurant on the street. One of the first questions in the small talk domain is often, what do you do? So we take off the for a living. We just say, what do you do? And when we ask that, we don't, what we're not saying is, what are your hobbies? What, is your, what do you do in your free time? What we're asking, what we're implying there for most people anyway is, what is your job? And maybe that's not the right question to be asking people. Maybe that's not the right way to be approaching the rest of society because it creates this idea that if you don't have a job, you are somehow potentially hierarchically less than someone who does. Perhaps a better question, and I've advocated for this before, is what are you reading? What an interesting, thought-provoking, and potentially revelatory question that would be if we led with that in new interactions. You meet a new person for the first time, a friend of a friend introduces you to somebody, and they say, hi, this is my friend, Jonathan. You say, hi, Jonathan. What are you reading? Not, hey, Jonathan, what do you do? So maybe what Fuller is saying is not that people shouldn't work, but that maybe the idea of working should not be the definition of our existence. And wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be just interesting to think about? It's an interesting thought experiment, which is a lot of what we do here on this show, is thought experiments. How would the world be different? Or how would your town or your interactions or your country be different if instead of one of the first five questions that you ask a stranger is, what do you do? Is, what do you read? Or what are you reading? Or what do you think about? Imagine that. Imagine somebody approaching you and asking you, hey, Jonathan, my name's Matt. What are you thinking about? Or what do you think about? I mean, that would, that would yield some fascinating responses, I'm sure. Sure, it'd be a little bit uncomfortable, be a little bit different. But if you think about it on its face, it's really no different than asking somebody what they do. I guess maybe if you ask what people think about, it's a little bit intimate, it's a little bit detailed for a first introduction, but certainly you should be able to ask somebody what they're reading. That would be interesting. Who knows what kinds of topics may come up. I had a wonderful conversation with a friend just yesterday about this very topic, and we exchanged a couple of book recommendations, and I have to say, it was a much more fulfilling conversation than what do you do for a living? Where do you drive your car, get on your train, and sit yourself all day long while you work or stand or do whatever. There's far more to people, I think, than just 
what they do for a living. And I think that is the point that Fuller is trying to drive at, is not that people shouldn't work. He's not looking necessarily for a utopian society, because thinking about what you enjoyed before somebody told you you had to earn a living doesn't actually generate anything for society on its face. We all are members of society. There is a certain amount of responsibility to contribute something. And that's how we have come to feel like work is that definition. Now, going and thinking about something else ultimately, hopefully, yields something that's, that contributes to society. But far more interesting and far more defining than that is what does a person think about? What does a person read? What does a person worry about? Those things are far more interesting and should potentially, arguably, as Fuller would say, I'm sure, be more compelling definers of a person than what they do for work. And there's a philosophical component to this. Does what you do matter? Does it really matter? I mean, think about what you do on a daily basis. What is your job, right? If, you, if this is how we want to define ourselves or this is how we currently do, ask yourself, what do you do? And does it really matter? At the end of the day, in 100 years, in 200 years, hell, in 1,000 years, are people going to look back and go, the contributions of that particular individual meant something? I mean, even 10 days from now, are people going to look and say, that person's contributions mean something? Or are we all on some form of treadmill? And again, it's philosophical. It's something to think about. And to Fuller's final point, to give him the respect that you know, his talents and his contributions deserve, ask yourself the, the question that he does, that he challenges at the end of his statement is, what would you do if you could? What would you do if you could go back to school and think about what it was that you enjoyed before somebody told you you had to earn a living? And if something immediately popped into your mind when I said that, or you think about it and something pops into your mind, can you do that? Can you do that thing? And maybe you can't. Maybe it can't become your 40-hour-a-week thing. If I'm not even going to call it a job. It's not something that you can devote, devote 40 hours a week to. But can you devote some time to it? Can you devote a few minutes to it? Can you devote a couple hours a week to it? How? How would you do that? How could you devote a little bit of that time? Could you get up a little bit earlier? Could you stay up a little bit later? Could you rearrange your schedule and trim some things out of it that don't contribute to that thing that you used to enjoy before somebody told you you had to earn a living? And if you can answer all of those questions, even if they're challenging, then my challenge to you today is do it. Find that thing. Think about that thing that you enjoy doing or enjoyed thinking about. Find some time and do just a little bit. Because I, I think what Fuller would argue is that you will be a better person, you will be a more fulfilled person and a happier person if you can find that and do it. So do that today. That's the challenge. Until next time, I'm Matthew Monroe. This is Quotations, and thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please subscribe in your favorite podcast app or visit me at quotationspod.com to download and listen. Please also take a moment to recommend the podcast to a friend. That's a huge help. You can tweet at me at quotationspod. Send me an email to quotationspod at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at quotationspod or join the conversation on Facebook at quotationspod. I look forward to hearing from you, welcome your feedback, and thanks as always for listening.